Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. The Living Church, Catholic, Evangelical, Ecumenical. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and we're here today with our first tea service ready, LapCat approved Christmas author chat. It's cold outside, but it's warm and snug inside. The whole scene is pervaded by indoorness. Pets are snoozing on Turkish carpets, the kettle's singing, we're wearing sweaters with elbow patches, drinking rum punch, smoking pipes. Are we talking about Christmas or are we describing Anglophilia? What is it about early to mid-century English stuff that Americans, maybe especially Episcopalians, tend to love? Anglophilia and nostalgia for another place or time can be so powerful. They draw some people to subjects they end up dedicating their careers to, like history or theology. They draw other people to or back to the church. Take the person in any generation charmed by the novels of C.S. Lewis, Dorothy Sayers, or J.R.R. Tolkien, for example. For some, like our guest today, nostalgia sparks a vocation to words and the life of the imagination. I love nostalgia, but how can it impede as well as teach us? I sat down in the library of Canterbury House in Dallas, in an armchair with a mug of tea, to speak with novelist H.S. Cross. As well as being an author, she is a teacher and a tutor, and she has written two novels set between the world wars in an English boarding school, St. Stephen's Academy. The books are titled Wilberforce and Grievous, both published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, and you can find links to explore those titles in the show notes. She's currently at work on a third book, also linked to St. Stephen's, and we're happy to have her on the Living Church Foundation board, where we know her as Heather. My conversation with Heather about English boarding schools, suffering, and nostalgia as, in her words, Edenic longing, have me convinced that what diehard Anglicans love about an England-infused Christmas time can also teach us about Advent. We hope you enjoy the conversation. 
I'm just having my coffee right now, <laughs> even though I've been up all day. <laughs> well, thank you for being here today, um, even in, in such a, a hectic time. Um, the first thing I'd like to ask you before we dive into the world of uh, books, boarding schools, how are you these days? And what are you interested in or excited about these days? What's getting you up in the morning? Ah, great. Well, I'm, I think I'm doing pretty well as things go, you know. Um, literally, what gets me up in the morning is a lot of the time I'm living upstate um, at my mom's house. And so I get up at the crack of dawn and take the dogs on a five-mile hike first thing. Um, and so it has to happen there for scheduling reasons, but it's also a fantastic time to be, like, be outside and um, kind of listen to morning prayer and clear your head and think your thoughts and um, get exercise. And I love it. Did you say a five mile hike every morning? So it's great. It's really great. First thing is <laughs> beautiful and it's the countryside. And um, so that that's been terrific. And that's been since March. Um, then I I don't know. It's it's hard to answer the question of of what is mentally um, motivating and focusing me because it just seems like there, there are so many stimuli going on. And I'm, I think we all feel that way, but it's been very engaged for me. Um, I'm working on third book right now. So that's been going on. Um, although it hasn't been going on quite in the way I was expecting it to because of all the reasons that we all share, but the whole change to the way we work or the way that I work and the way my routine works, um, and the way that creative energies work and all that kind of stuff. Um, is affecting the the kind of way the book is getting drafted uh, and the material that's coming out. So I wouldn't say that the characters, the plot necessarily are changing, but how the book is going to look. Um, I mean, I'm in the condition right now of like, I just have way too much material and I'm not yet figuring out what I'm going to do with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've, um, I don't know when you're planning for this new one to come out. Are you allowed to say what year we could possibly be looking for it? Not really. It's set in the same world as the other two, but um, the action is adult oriented and very little of it is at the school. Okay. Okay. It's still, you're deep in, you are in it right now. Um, well, you have, you have written two substantial novels. Um, one called Wilberforce and one called Grievous. And they, they build on each other and they both, they, they both take place in a boys boarding school in England. And so I'm wondering what, what drew you into this world um, of English boarding schools into this school world? I hesitate to call your books school stories um, because that has certain connotations of maybe lightness Um but what drew you into this place um, in the first place? And and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm a bit distracted because I realized that my computer is about to run out of battery. So I need to grab my cord. I'm so sorry. One moment, Heather. I've broken the cardinal rule of podcasting, which is always make sure you have your power cord. <laughs> you know, I just think like logistics are breaking down all over in every dimension of everyone's lives. And, you know, it's like if 2020 is about anything, it's about we all just have to roll with it and forgive each other. That's right. So what what drew you, Heather, into this world of boarding schools and school tales in the first place? 
Well, it was really irrational. Um, while you were getting your court, I was thinking about how when I was a kid, um, a kid, I say like through school and, and college, the time I would really do the binge reading and get into the series and so on was often in the summer because those were those big unstructured times um, where you had all this, all this time to read and you really could get lost in things. And when I, um, the origin story for this is insane. I was a teenager. I was flipping channels on like one of those early cable boxes with a dial where there were like 10 channels or something bored, just sort of wandering around the house. I think it was the summer, it was hot or it was the spring or something. And I came upon an arts and entertainment network, uh, dramatization of Kipling's school stories, stalking and company, which the characters in my novels are also very into as, as stories. And I just, and, and it was it later I had learned it was a BBC, the BBC version. And I just stood there kind of with my mouth open and it was really attractive. Um, really attractive and I couldn't understand it. Um, Can you put your finger on it now? And I ask because, because partly, and you're an American, I'm an American, there does also tend to be a lot of appeal, a lot of draw for Americans specifically to the English boarding school world. So can you, <laughs> what do you think about that now? I think that there was something about, um, you know, I was a pretty girly girl um, and fairly timid in some ways. And there was something about the like resolute masculineness of it and the, the um, resilience of it. And these characters in Stalking Company are um, kind of executing these series of brilliant revenges against their enemies, whether that be other students or teachers. And, um, you know, kind of taking their knocks when they get them, but, but working it out anyway for their benefit. And that was just hilarious to me and very funny. But I think that there was, a, there was something about the, the freedom of the world and the uh, strength of it, but also the, the edge, the bite, the, um, the, the suffering and brutality, but the triumph in it and the camaraderie. And all of that was really quite alien to me. And yet it utterly absorbed me. And I, I ended up getting the book from the library and, you know, Kipling is under rights like you wouldn't believe. And plus I had no introduction to the, to the vocabulary or anything of boarding school. And it took me a long time to even understand what was happening in these books. And yet they didn't bore me. Usually you don't get it and you're like, whatever. And I just was utterly obsessed and then began to read my way through the whole English boarding school opus starting with the books that they refer to and mocked and then going kind of from one to another, like friends introducing each other. Hmm. Um, and then eventually, a, you know, a year or two later, I got around to the point w which you get to when you're a teenager and you're trying to write, which is you're really imitating your favorite stuff, um, where I started making up a school of my own that was like theirs, but not. Um, and then that became, uh, I, I mean, it was like some terrible 16-year-old, 17-year-old writing, but it became an imaginary place that I went to. Um, and then years went by and I kept playing around in there. And eventually it became, you know, the material that, that worked its way into these novels. But it was, it was sort of an imaginary space before it really became a work of adult literature that I wrote. So there's something, there was something in the world of the boarding school that even as a young girl, you were extremely attracted to. Um, and you said, you used the word irrational. It was an irrational attraction, very visceral attraction. 
um, and held something for you that the immediate reality of your own world did not have. And part of what's fascinating about this is that this kind of longing for a, a world that wasn't exactly yours, that was a different time, a different place, a, a different gender, you entered into it. And by entering into it, your now career as a writer um, essentially got a foothold and this imaginary landscape from which um, your two first novels uh, came to be. So bearing fruit in the actual world rather than just staying in the world of the imagination. And I, I'd love to use that as a launching point to talk a little bit about nostalgia um, question that was more starting to resemble a lecture. So let me back up a little bit and just take it, take it piece by piece, because I do want to talk about nostalgia and whether nostalgia can be, whether and how it can be fruitful, um, especially, you know, approaching in approaching Christmas, a time that can be full of nostalgia, full of a painful nostalgia for a lot of people, um, full of unfruitful nostalgia that makes their actual experiences with their families or as the case may be, especially now for a lot of us alone, um, that nostalgia kind of makes things more difficult and, and doesn't bear a lot of fruit. But I want to take it apart a, bit by bit and, and, and work um, from a little farther back. So your novels take place in the 20s, the early 30s in English boarding schools. And it's this space that is ripe for so many things, um, ripe for um, coziness and camaraderie, but also brutality and nostalgia for a different time. I want to be, I want to be cozy. I want to be comfortable. I want to, I want complacent bishops in armchairs. I want <laughs> tea and biscuits by the fire. I want the camaraderie to be simply heroic. But your books don't, they bring us into the reality of these boarding schools in the 20s and 30s um, in a way that that is almost uber real. It's, it's almost in technicolor. Um, there's, a, there's a hyper reality that felt apocalyptic to me, even though we're in a time and a space that can bring an expectation of coziness in a way to, to enjoy our anglophilia. It's just not very comfortable to be in. This is a time after World War I, before World War II. Um, so even the time that it's taking place in is a time where major changes are happening um, in the West, especially, that are, that are um, existentially disturbing to people. And you see some of these things, you know, men who have been broken by being in the war, coming back and being teachers and headmasters, over boys that have lost parents who need father figures to impress. And so they take out their frustration on younger boys and in, uh, in bullying and creating regimes. And they say things that are so witty, but they don't quite know what they're saying or the import of their words. Um, and, and it's damp all the time. And it feels, it's so intimate in, in the boarding school that it's claustrophobic uh, and, and, you know, lust is running rampant. I mean, they're adolescent boys, but also the men um, have, uh, you know, have lusts as well. And the food is so bad and the taps are always cold and the competition is so fierce and the insider slang is so hard to follow. Um, 
there's this, there's camaraderie, but there's also so much brutality in it. How did you, what drew you into and through the dark side of this place and this time? Well, I I would say that um, I was trying to make reality. You know, my experience of, I mean, I haven't had a terrible life. I don't have very much, you know, I can't complain about it. Wasn't like abused at school or home or anything, you know, but life, there are, there are traumas in life. And, you know, when you were describing the twenties and the thirties and the time of upheaval, I was thinking, you know, that describes the process of falling in love and it describes the process of grief. Um, And certainly it describes trauma, you know, trauma is such a, I don't like to throw that term around. It's gotten so politicized, but let's just talk about love and grief, right? Um, Losing someone that you love through death or separation um, and love. And both of those things I find in my personal experience are wildly disruptive, um, really violent. Um, they, both of them exert a, 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 like a destructive violence over what your life was previously. And there's, you know, sometimes more, more pleasant and sometimes more pain. And, but when can we exactly always separate them? Um, and so uh, I, I think that I, I mean, I love the cozy, fun stories, but at a certain point, they bore me. Um, they're kind of like a sugar with nothing else in them. And so I mm. wanted I wanted a world, I mean, I imagined characters and imagined people who, in a way, to me, were real. And I guess real meaning um, that they had the greatest range and depth of human experience that I could imagine and that I could, either through my own experience or imagination or both. So I think I was working out, I am working out reality through them. Um, so maybe the, the imposition comes more from me than from them <laughs> um, of it. Uh, and I, I think, you know, nostalgia, you're right, it's so slippery and it can be very dangerous because it can be the end all be all. It can be a fantasy that you pretend is reality, but it can also be, I think, an avenue for feeling. It can open us up. Um, because a nostal- I guess it's sort of like an edenic longing, right? A very intense nostalgia is a longing for really an imagined past, um, even if you sort of experienced it, but your memory is imagined. Um, and so it's an edenic longing. And to me, that is, is indispensable of the human experience. And we can't let pretend that somehow we can get back there. <laughs> but yet, if you off to that, then you shut yourself off to the longing for ultimately, you know, kind of things eternal, right? I mean, what does it mean if you're a person and you like keep your mind on things eternal? I'm like, I don't know eternity. I, what is heaven? I don't know. But I know nostalgia and I know a longing for times that I can't return to, for a longing for things in memory that I can't return to. And that's maybe the closest that I could come to understanding eternity. How much would you give to hear presiding Bishop Michael Curry talk about football with Stanley Hauerwas? If you subscribe to the podcast or tune in January 14th, that's exactly what you'll get to hear. And of course, you don't have to pay. Some of the best things in life are, after all, free. But we'd love if you'd consider sponsoring the Living Church podcast. You can choose a sponsorship level anywhere from $0.99 cents to $9.99 a month. If you enjoy what we do, if you find it edifying and entertaining, Click the link to sponsor in the podcast description or in the show notes. It's a small gift, but for a nonprofit like us, it can go a long way. Thanks for considering. 
I'm not quite sure what the link is here, but it was coming to my mind as you were talking about nostalgia, and particularly nostalgia that is so endemic in the in the Anglican Episcopal Church for the Anglophilia, you know, <laughs> which can get so so obsessed with fakery, like it can be so profoundly empty, hideously so. Um, but it can also be spare no words, Heather. Spare no well, words. Okay, so she's speaking from. She's speaking tell from us how you really feel. <laughs> yeah, but. It can also, and I've had this experience with like being at, you know, an incredibly beautiful church that is maybe like the English cathedral experience, listening to say an even song with the choral repertoire performed exquisitely the way it was meant to be performed. And sometimes when that's happened, I've had this experience of, of like time is stacking up. History is stacking up. And I'm mm-hmm. here now in New York in this church with these singers and these people. And I'm also with the writer of this piece who's not with us anymore. And I'm with all the people through history. This is like the kind of, um, you know, the the communion of saints who've, who've also experienced this. And every time it was played, it's opening up a door to eternity and to the divine. And I'm in it right now. And somehow all of time is stacked up right now. And I'm now and I'm also in the past. And that's, that's a really exciting experience. And I think that when nostalgia is working fruitfully, to use your words, and I hope that this is the case at times in my book, that it's, it's opening that door um, for characters and, and for readers too. Um, because of course the world that I created is fake, right? It's sort of authentic. I mean, I did research, but I'm not reproducing any real school. And I made it a second rate school that no one's ever heard of so that I wouldn't be criticized for not getting eaten right, you know, because I could never get it right. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, of course, and as you said, it's the hyper reality is like restored in Technicolor, you know. Um. <laughs> and it's not just second rate. I mean, the name of your school is St. Stephen's, who's he's named after the first martyr. Mm-hmm. So I'm positive that there's a level there um, that's that you intend to be instructive for us, well, you know the name of the school again. The you know this material um, percolated for so long, and the name of the school, I I can't remember when I named the school. It was a long, long, long time ago, um, and I think that I named it uh, because the fact that he was the first Christian martyr came later. This one of the streets I lived on as a kid was Stevens Road, and I also my elementary school was the Gross Point Academy. So you put those two things together and you get St. Stephen's Academy. So <laughs> I think that's like where it originally ah. A lot of things come from weird places, like they're random or they're like that, but then mm-hmm. they become what they are. That isn't what it is now. It's more than that now. And it definitely has that first that first Christian martyr. And, you know, the whole thing with the school, they have their patron's day in the middle of the summer, really on St. Saint John, you know, day. But yet, because they're, the St. Stephen's Day is in the middle of winter vacation when no one's there and they can't celebrate it and it's also depressing and they just want this midsummer thing. Um, so, <laughs> mm-hmm. where, the, where the day, where literally the day and the light go as long as possible. Yep, the longest day. Yeah. So they're kind of, they're choosing, they, 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 they um, what do they call it? Um, they, they transpose it to, <laughs> to, to the different time of year. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of a lot of the boys, um, some major action in your first book in Wilberforce. Uh, a lot of major action takes place on Patron's Day and in this Midsummer Day and the Midsummer Evening that lasts so long, like a major major crux of the plot. 
And then in, um, on the other hand, the Christmas Eve, um, Christmas holidays is the time in which another major, um, crux, um, in, in the plot and in the lives of the two main characters happens in your second book, Grievous. So I just find, I find that interesting as well. Um, and again, as an author, also as a writer, I know that you, so many things happen by, by accident, by a kind of blessed serendipity that, that a theme or, or a symbol comes out and you didn't start out, you didn't write in your notebook, um, must expand on theme of light and darkness. <laughs> but I mean, you know, the shortest day of the year and the longest day of the year, those tend to come out, um, you know, as, as you're working with characters who become more and more human, um, they find themselves in symbolic situations, which is exactly how actual human beings find themselves. And I think I've always been very, very, um, uh, setting often comes first for me. Um, you know, like the place. And so this intense attraction to places. And I did spend, you know, quite a bit of time in England, particularly as a kind of late teenager and in college, but, you know, in other years too. But it was a really formative time for me when I was in England in many of the places where these books are set. Um, so there's a there's an intense uh, sensitivity in, in me as a person. I don't know how well it comes across to setting, to time, to place, to weather, to light, to times of the year, um, to and so I think that drove um, on an intuitive emotional level probably a lot of these ultimately unconscious choices about when things would happen in the year. Yeah, yeah, and and your characters. So one thing that struck me as we were talking earlier is um, the time that it's also set in post World War One, pre World War Two in. World War One, something cracked open, something completely unprecedented and unexpected um, in modern Western society happened. And a, it's almost like tectonic plates shifted, the earth opened up, and this, this chasm was opened up um, of, of just the brutality and the potential of brutality in our own hearts, in, in our actions as people and as nations. Um, but what's funny is World War I didn't create that situation. It exposed um, an essential human situation. Um, and one of those factors is, um, and, you know, I just on the side, I kind of wondered uh, about your um, relationship to um, doctrines of sin um, as someone who's, who's been Episcopalian for a long time and is, is, um, deeply theologically formed in, in some significant ways. So just a side note, I'd love to hear a little bit about your relationship with, with, um, sin and how these are working out, um, in the books. But what we see revealed is this deep problem of, of human brokenness and the, the, the capacity for cruelty. And at the same time, um, vulnerability at the very same time, the, the bait, one of the other basic things is just human vulnerability. And so our, our basic, um, you know, without being clothed with Christ, we still have two basic positions before God. One as is, as is a completely contingent, completely vulnerable creature. And the other is as a sinful creature who's still completely contingent and vulnerable. And so, this war opened up something and made put front and center something in the culture that um, 
you know, while at the same time we look back and we see the tweed jackets and the fireplaces and the um, way everyone sort of more or less seemed to be witty um, and and the tea and the scones made with real butter and, and all this. Um, but then also something had, had cracked open about reality and these boys and these men, but particularly the boys in the, in these books seem so sensitive to this dual reality, the way that adolescents just are. And so I'm thinking about that dual reality and, and our sinfulness, our vulnerability, and then also, um, the time in your book that that gets literally the most dark around Christmas time, but also where a, the darkness in two of the main characters um, come to a head. Uh, one of the characters that you are pretty sure is is a big hero in the first book in some ways turns out to have a um, some major issues in the second one, including um, develops an addiction to morphine um, and spirals down and down. And in this, it's in this place of of literal literally the darkest time of the year and also this darkness of the soul that this character is going through, um, that the potential for him to see himself, the potential for a relationship that was previously unseen, the potential for love, um, breaks open in a really beautiful way. And I just, I find that fascinating. And I, and, and just the heart, heartbreaking time of adolescence and the way that we feel those very things are, are supposed to bring ourselves to feel them during Advent as a practice and as a discipline to feel our own vulnerability and our own, you know, not a big ask, just to feel our own existential vulnerability and, and, uh, and the depths of our uh, cruelty and, and darkness. Um, yeah, that I just found that fascinating. I don't have a question, a pointed question for you in there, but I'm sure you have some thoughts. I mean, I do, I do think that um, you know the, the process of being broken open by life, right? Whatever that thing is, um, and and what is it that you can see when that happens? Um, and so these characters, you know, I mean, like all my characters, they have a long, long way to go before they can really see and really and the change really happens sort of everything has to be exhausted but i i think that the that the broken sinful um condition and the love and and hope and longing and need and kind of worship right those those all go together they're not really it's not binary to me but going going back to what you were saying kind of about sin and i would say that um you know, I, I'm not a theologian, so although I am formed, you know, as formed as I can be at this point, uh, I couldn't explain it um, like, say, our friend Victor Austin would explain it as theologian. <laughs> um, but I definitely am tuned into the the awareness of brokenness and the awareness of sin um, and the awareness of um, Jesus's redemption. Um, and in grace, and that those two things go together, and having kind of love from Jesus and redemption and forgiveness without the grit is again just not as meaningful. Um, and so, so those two things go together to me. Um, and so, I would say that my experience of of Christianity is is like a really big, robust, gritty experience, rather than you know too much one way or the other. Well, I was I was also remembering that you use the word grit to describe the stocky stories. 
of Kipling. And that's part of what attracted you to it. Um, as a, a very a girly girl who's kind of timid, um, it was this grit that drew you in a visceral way uh, to these stories because it is it represented, it seems like some kind of engagement, um, some kind of engagement with life that's extremely messy. Oh my goodness. I'm grateful for counselors. I'm grateful, you know, for Prozac and things that that help people. But this is a time without those things. I mean, psychoanalysis had sort of just started and and you bring it in a little bit. But in some ways, sometimes it just seemed to make things worse <laughs> the way that people were trying to muck about in their own minds and souls to to figure out, you know, this this deep disturbance that's happening. Um Whereas at the school where there aren't a lot of, where there's this incredible intimacy, there aren't a lot of, there isn't a lot of um, licit recourse, Christianly licit recourse that you can take. You do truly see redemption at work. Yeah. And I would say that um, the idea of, rel- of relieving struggles is sort of off the agenda. Like I'm not really interested in relieving struggles. I'm interested in in where they lead, you know, how they how you get through them, um, as opposed to like relieving them per se, dramatically, you know, uh, I mean, life is another thing. We all want to relieve our struggles and should to a reasonable extent, but you know, there's, there's a sort of thing of like, you know, you, um, whose advice is this? I don't even remember who's, who says for writing, get your trouble, get your main character into trouble on the first page and keep him there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, uh-huh, yeah. writer, you have to make your, your characters suffer, it's what we're doing here, you know. <laughs> I mean, hopefully not, hopefully not in a gratuitous, unwarranted way. Um, and I don't know. I feel like sometimes we're giving this idea that this, these are really brutal books that are just so painful to read, and, and really, there's also so much play and so much, you know, especially with the stuff with the theater and the art and the music. Um, you know, there's there's so much uh, of these people being drawn by art and and also by the church and um, by by the liturgy mm-hmm. by the book by the tradition, by the music, by the church music, by um, biblical literacy, you know, into something much bigger and into a story where people through human history have been struggling with what they're struggling with. Um, And so when you can get out of your own little world through these other things, um, I think it's, I think it's exciting for them. Um, And I hope that that experience is being replicated somewhat for the reader too. I would say I would say that it is, and the the whole one of the things that fascinated me most, um, and w- which we've talked about at some length, is nostalgia. But you use actually in your second book the Greek word that's that means homecoming, where the word nostalgia comes from. Is is that right? You use that word very pointedly. Yeah, nostalgia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and. Um, when you say that that the importance is getting out of their own little worlds, the thing that that being drawn into an imaginary world where you're so immersed in a place where your character is in trouble from the very first page and stays in trouble throughout uh, throughout the book, by entering by entering into that place, I mean, if, if people want a good Advent practice, I mean, get into a good novel where something very troubling is happening to the character and they can't, and they can't get out of it because where there's longing to get out of it. And that's only where you stay. 
that seems to be nostalgia that's unfruitful, where you're longing to escape what's real. But nostalgia in the sense of a homecoming is also oriented toward the future, where in your engagement in the struggles that are taking place that we we can't, there's only one way out of this life, you know, and it's death now or death later, or, you know, one kind of death or another. The nostalgia that's fruitful is the kind that is nostalgia for the future in a way. And that's, that's a very Christian concept that there will be a day when all tears are wiped away, when all, you know, all sin and death and, and, and pain in the way we know it now are relieved. But, but heroism and those things that come out of the places of pain, the heroism, the redemption, um, the love, the heartbreaking moments of being able to really see another person, all of those things are, are preserved and opened up uh, fully to us. And so we, you know, are taking time now to look forward to that day. So I think your books could be a good way uh, to enter and school books that aren't too easy to read uh, can be a good way to enter into that time uh, of longing that that we're experiencing right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope so. Um, because Advent is longing, is, is awaiting. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, being, being a Christian writer, which I would call myself, um, and yet writing literary fiction, you know, you're not kind of writing something didactic, you're not intending to put your religious message into your fiction so explicitly. And yet, as a, as a human being, I'm always looking for the movement of God in the world. And so I look for it in, in the world that I made too. Um, and so th the more real that the characters and their interactions and their struggles are, um, the more, as the author, I'm looking for those breakings in of, of, um, of God into their world um, without, you know, and you can't be really explicit and you can't control it yourself as an author, you have to let it happen. And so I, I, I hope that those things happen in these novels. I mean, I believe that they do um, particularly, you know, Wilberforce, I think is a, I always felt was, or I came to feel was a book that was about Easter, really about, let, let's say, mm. Holy Saturday, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of when you go to the vigil and it's the empty church, you're like inside the bottom of some giant dark ship. I felt like Wilberforce ultimately became about that. The climax of the book is about that moment. And, and Grievous, always to me was about Christmas in some way and about kind of the moment, the surprise, the shock, the cataclysm of the incarnation. Um, and that's where the climax of this book is. Both of the endings are probably really underwritten, but that's, that's kind of where, where they are. That makes total sense to me having freshly read them. And I look forward to your third book. Um, will it, uh, is this one going to center on uh, the Feast of St. Alban or um, Michaelmas or what, where's the crux of this one going to take place? A good question. Um, but, uh, you know, is it, is it about the movement of the Holy Ghost more than, you know, Easter, Christmas? Uh, we'll see. Well, I, I hope that you have a, a lovely Christmas, um, a happy Christmas, a merry one, and um, a good, stringent advent um with some coziness in there at least a little bit of coziness and and we'll look forward to that third book from you oh thank you so much it's been great talking with you likewise
Thanks for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. If you'd like to support this podcast so we can continue to make these episodes, you can find a link for giving in the show notes. Look for more coming soon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, on our website, livingchurch.org, or on our award-winning blog, Covenant, at livingchurch.org forward slash covenant. We're taking a break for the rest of the year, but you will not want to miss presiding Bishop Michael Curry and Stanley Hauerwas on January 14th. Just in time for Super Bowl season, we got them together to talk about American football, ethics, and the love of the game. Is football a sin? Tune in January 14th to find out. Subscribe to the Living Church Podcast so you don't miss it, and have a blessed Advent and a Merry Christmas in the meantime. As always, I'm your host, Amber Noel, and I've been glad to be with you. Peace. Peace.